Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, we've got uh, <clears throat> three, maybe four announcements uh, to go over. First of all, next Tuesday night, Rabbi Robert Haas will be here from uh, Congregation Emmanuel to talk about the Jewish High Holy Days, which began the evening of uh, September the 8th, which is uh, Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days later, you have uh, Yom Kippur, and then five days later, Sukkot, so he'll come and talk to us about uh, what Jews believe about the High Holy Days, how they practice them, different customs, things like that. He and I had lunch yesterday and uh, talked about various things to cover and uh, just got to know each other a little bit. So I think you all will enjoy him. Then the next Saturday, which is the 28th, that's the teen night, right? That's uh, for the football game. Show up about 4.30 here for... uh, Cookout, hot dogs, hamburgers, and then um, tailgate party, and then off to the uh, stadium. And then the next Tuesday night, which is, what is that, August? No. Yeah, the 31st. That's when we'll have our uh, town town meeting here. And then the uh, next week, uh, we'll be into September. Hard to believe. There was another announcement I thought of on the way up here, but... It slipped right through the cracks, I guess. Uh, I'm going to try something new tonight uh, so you can tell me whether you like it or you don't like it or you can't read it or uh, any other comments you have. That's uh, Logos Bible Software has come up with, uh, they've got a new, um, the latest uh, editions come out and it's been out for a while. I'm still trying to learn how to use all of it, but I thought that I might see what it's like to use portions of it or use some of it to teach uh, some of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight. So uh, if the text is too small, you can let me know and we'll see if it's worth pursuing. Oh, I know what the other thing was. I buried it underneath my Bible here. That's what it is. Okay, the 19th annual pre-trib study group will be meeting in Dallas at uh, in at the Sheridan Grant Hotel on December 6th through 8th. We'll be sending out, ele- emailing out electronic copies of this brochure, which gives you the schedule, location, times, and the various speakers who will be, uh, be there this year, uh, Dr. Wayne House, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Paul Wilkinson, who's, this will be his third year. He's very interesting. He did his Ph.D. dissertation at, um, I may be wrong, I'm thinking University of Birmingham in uh, Britain on John Nelson Darby and Christian Zionism. An excellent work. He's uh, done tremendous amount of research in the history of, of uh, dispensational uh, thought. Uh, Andy Woods, Mike Stallard, who's excellent, uh, several others. I'm not speaking this year. I only speak about every, every other year. But this, it's always very good. There's always a good group. It's not just for uh, academics, pastors, scholars, professors anymore. And it's been several years now, probably almost ten that we've have that it's been opened up. And attendance is usually around uh, three or four hundred people. And there's a banquet on Monday night. And the speaker this year is David Larson, who's a, just a great person to listen to. I mean, he's one of these great. He's a great orator as well as has great um, great content. So we'll be putting out some more information like that. Usually there's you know, 10 or 12 that go up for that from here, but I'd like to encourage uh, more to go. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendous opportunity. I think that was it for announcements. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we can be here this evening again to study your word, to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that we may come to think as you think and think in terms of how you have revealed yourself uh, to us, that in the revelation of yourself to us in the word, you give us a framework for thinking about all of the issues that we face in life, whether they are uh, of a more intellectual, academic uh, nature or whether they are of a more... uh, uh, immediate relational uh, involvement, such as we often face in dealing with relationships and trying to maintain peace in these relationships and resolve conflicts. And we pray that as we look at these passages this evening in our continued study of what it means to pursue peace with all men and how we can uh, work at resolving uh, conflicts, and often these are very close to home within our own families, and it's uh, often very difficult. We pray that you would help us to see how to apply these principles in our own lives and in our own situations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started off in our study looking at this topic coming out of our study in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where the command is to pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord focusing on that initial command to pursue peace with all people, which is also stated uh, in a slightly different way in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, where we are to seek, using the same verb there, dioko, to pursue or to seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Also in Romans chapter 13, it talks about the fact that we are to be uh, pursuing peace, if at all possible, uh, with uh, everyone. So this is a primary objective and priority in the believer's life. Now, last time I talked about the foundation for this. If you don't get the foundation right, then it, uh, many times this just can't happen. If you have uh, breakdowns in uh, relationships within families or business or any other kind of relationship, if they're not faced and addressed with honesty and integrity, and above all, humility, it just can't get resolved on any sort of substantial basis. And we understand from the study of the Word of God all the way through Old Testament and New Testament that two elements are foundational. That is a proper understanding of grace and a proper understanding of love, and that these are ultimately demonstrated for us in the gospel, that God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, that is, in a position of hostility, a position where we are ethically obnoxious to God, and you have various uh, metaphors that are used in Scripture to stress the uncleanness of man versus the purity of God, that God in his love towards that which was completely unacceptable to him, and not only completely unacceptable, but in hostility to him, rejecting his word, disobedient to him, in idolatry, various forms of rebellion and uh, disloyalty. Nevertheless, God in his grace extends a plan of salvation to man that is based not on what man does, but on what God does. And that's the model, is that ultimately whenever we are in a set of circumstances where we're trying to uh, make up or resolve conflicts in a marriage, in any relationship, it 
we have to pattern it on some sort of external, universal, absolute. We can't pattern it on our on emotions or feelings because those are inherently unstable. It's only when we look to something outside of creation in the character of God and the plan of salvation that we can truly come to understand what it means to have an unconditional or unmerited love for someone that's not conditioned on what they do, how they respond, how they act, and can get us out of self-absorption. The basic enemy to a, a, a peaceful relationship is arrogance. Arrogance enters into to it in many, many different guises. You can have overt arrogance where somebody's just so full of pride, and then you can have pseudo-humility, which is just the reverse side where it is a, a false humility that is just another form of, of arrogance that's just manifested in disguise. And you have uh, various degrees of self-absorption. And uh, when we live in the kind of culture we have, that is, a, as I think it was Christopher Lash who titled his book back in the 80s, The Culture of Narcissism. And you can probably, if I gave most of you a test and asked you to list the five best candidates for, the, for, for Narcissist of the Year, you'd probably put down pretty much the same people. Just watch Entertainment Tonight some night and you'll get a lot of them. But just because they happen to be exposed on television doesn't mean that you're a whole lot better or that I'm a whole lot better. We are the products of our culture. Every one of us, every human being, from the fall of Adam in the garden all the way through the ancient civilizations of Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Israel, uh, all the modern countries, doesn't matter where you go, we all have these same basic trends and when you live in a culture that promotes narcissism, which our culture does, I mean, just think about the popular magazines. I know some of you don't want to admit it, but you see these and you look at these when you're going through the uh, checkout line at the, uh, at the grocery store, or you'd like to bundle these up and take them with you when you go on a little weekend trip to get away and forget about all the cares of life. And so you'll pick up magazines like People Magazine, which originally came out of a section of Time Time Magazine. And so it was all about people. And then it wasn't long before there was another spinoff, and it was all about us. And so you got to read about us. And then there was another <coughs> periodical, another magazine that came out, and it, it was really getting close to home, and it was about self. And we, that's, if you just look at the titles of many of these magazines, they're, it's all about you. And it's just all about focusing on you, 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 how you can lose weight, how you can uh, uh, look better, how you can attract the right person, how you can feel better, how you can solve all of your problems, how you can solve all your husband's problems or all your wife's problems. It's all about you. And we get this message uh, overtly and covertly again and again and again through all the exposure that we all have. And even the best of us who don't think we have that big of a problem with self-absorption uh, really do. We're just in self-deception. All of these are part of our, our arrogant skills, which we have mastered and have PhDs in by the time we're two, two years old or two and a half years old, and we're already manipulating our parents to do everything we want because everything revolves around us. As soon as we started screaming when we came out of the womb and we noticed every time we made a noise, somebody showed up and did something to us, we learned that it was all about us. And this just gets reinforced again and again and again. So when that competition came on the scene and we began to realize that there was a brother or a sister that was either already there or was coming along, and when they screamed and yelled, they got more attention than we did. Now we have the foundation for a lot of conflict because it's not about them, it's about me. And that's one of the first things we all have to make sure everybody else understands is it's all about me. It's not about you. I'm going to be nice sometimes and let you think it's about you, but I'm only going to let you think it's about you so that we can get back to making sure it's all about me. 
And that's just how life works, because we are just self-absorbed, and that self-absorption leads to self-deception, and self-deception leads to self-justification, and self-justification leads to self-deification, and that's the whole structure of what Paul is saying in Romans 1. When we kick, when we kick God off the throne and say there is no God, the person we just put on the throne was us. We decided we knew more than God knew. We were omniscient. We know all the facts that possibly could be known in the universe, and that means there can't be a God. Or if it's not the God of the Bible, then it's the, you know, some idol or some other system within creation that we're worshiping. In other words, arrogance leads us ultimately to self-absorption, self-deception, self-justification, and self-deification, and the more we uh, focus on self, the more we just burrow deep down into a hole that uh, just is filled with mirrors to remind us that it's all about us. So we're just from a culture of narcissism. And when we have to go into any kind of conflict resolution, you can never resolve, truly resolve a conflict with somebody else without humility. Humili- true, genuine humility is the foundation for any kind of resolution of a conflict. Because in most conflicts, um, even though we talk about the fact that there may be a, well, I'm 40% responsible, but see, as soon as we said I'm 40% responsible, we the, the subtext is that that's my self-justification. If I'm only 49% responsible, then somebody else is 51% responsible, so let's take care of them. They've got the problem, not me. And so the scripture makes it very clear that if you're going to resolve any kind of conflict with anybody, it starts with the self. It starts with us getting out of the arrogant self-absorption. And you can't do that if you don't understand grace. That grace means it's based not on who you are, it's based on who God is. That's that external standard that gives us the framework for understanding uh, both grace and love. And the perfect example, the best example, is, of course, the uh, gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And love is modeled there because the love that God manifests toward man is a love that doesn't say, first you have to do X, Y, or Z, then I will provide for you. God says, I'm giving you a free gift, no strings attached. It's salvation. You simply trust in my plan of salvation, trust in Jesus Christ. You're saved. That's it. That Does that mean there's no accountability or responsibility? Not at all. But salvation itself is just a free gift. So we have to understand both grace, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. The pers- let, let, Let's... Let's believe your little self-absorbed lie for a minute that it really is 100% the other person's fault. That means they don't deserve your kindness at all, so it's just pure grace, and it's up to you now to pass that spiritual test to demonstrate grace orientation by killing them with kindness, undeserved, unmerited, and at your very core of your being, you want to just sort of tighten up and go, but they don't deserve it. That Again, now you've got the point. They don't deserve it. Neither do you. And the more we think about what happens at the cross, the more you think about the whole transaction of God providing salvation through grace and love, the more that helps us understand how we are in turn to manifest this to others. So I pointed out last time verses such as Romans 5, 8, uh, <clears throat> emphasis on passages such as Matthew 554 5, that the, we're to love our enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you, and persecute you. When you are loving someone, blessing someone, praying for someone, and doing good for someone, it's about them, it's not about you. That gets us out of the self-absorbed narcissism and to focus on the other person. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6 expresses these same ideas. Jesus said, I say to those, uh, say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In other words, don't treat them, don't give them what they deserve, get, give them good things that they don't deserve. If you love someone, 
<clears throat> love those who love you, what credit is that to you? It's easy to love lovable people. It's easy to love people who are attractive, however we want to define attractiveness, whether it's physical attractiveness or emotional attractiveness or uh, financial attractiveness or whatever the criterion is. It's easy to love people like that. It's not easy to love people who are antagonistic to us, who are uh, angry with us, who have done bad things to us. And so Jesus is making the point that it's easy to love those who love you. What credit is that to you? For even sinners can do that. In other words, even those who are completely out of the will of God, have nothing to do with God, and are completely self-absorbed, they know how to love people who are attractive. But what we're to do is to love your enemies, do good, uh, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. You don't do it because you expect them to change. Now, that's a, that is a key element in conflict resolution, is there are right things to do in a relationship where there's a, a breakdown, and you can't predicate it or condition it on the fact that the other person is going to change. In some conflict resolution scenarios, you know and I know that this is going to go on for 20, 30, 40 years. It may never, that other person may never change. That doesn't change what we're supposed to do in the way that we, uh, in the way that we are treat, to treat them. We are to treat them in the same way that we would want to be treated in, if we were in that, uh, situation. Looked at other passages like John 13, 34, which emphasize that love is a commandment. Therefore, love is not an emotion. Love is two things. I said last week, first of all, it's a decision to deal, treat somebody a certain way because it's the right thing to do. And secondly, it is a mental attitude. It is a mindset. Now, emotion may come along with it. It may be associated with it, or it may not be associated with it. When Jesus goes to the cross, which is the ultimate example of love in the scriptures, he didn't feel real good. There's no sentimental positive emotion accepted or, 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 uh, that goes along with Jesus when he's on the cross. And I, before he went to the cross, he's under so much pressure that the, the scripture says that he's in emotional turmoil and he is sweating drops of blood. And that is a condition that happens to uh, many people in different kinds of extremely high-stress uh, circumstances where they're under so much pressure that the, the capillaries, the very thin capillaries that are right below the surface of the skin, uh, break from the pressure, and so those little drops of blood go out through the pores, and it looks like you're sweating blood instead of normal... Uh, uh, perspiration. Now, foundational passage for understanding, for understanding, uh, the whole process of conflict resolution between people is in Matthew chapter 7. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> this is the, the foundation of this passage is that humility, objective self-evaluation, is foundational to any level, uh, any kind of conflict resolution. We can't go into a situation saying you have the other person has to recognize these five things that they've done wrong, and when they do that, then then you know I'll forgive them. That's conditional. Uh, it's motivated by, still by anger, hurt feelings. Sometimes, and one thing I want to make a note of is it's real easy for us sometimes to be in a situation or to look at somebody who's been in a situation where they have been betrayed, abused, have maltreated, and we say, you know, this is what you need to do, go do it. But when you know as well as I do that there are times when your feelings have been hurt so badly that it takes time before you're ready to settle down and be able to do the right thing. That doesn't mean it's an excuse for languishing in self-pity and anger and resentment, but it's a reality. You may be needing to confess your sin and deal with and really focus on the word for some time before you can 
uh, get past the situation and start being objective. Sometimes we try to make things resolve too quickly before we are ready or it's the right time. One of the key things we learn in Scripture so many times with watching God work in the lives of individuals, think about how God works with, with the nation Israel in the Old Testament. We've been studying in Kings on Sunday morning for a long time. And notice how when uh, the nation Israel goes into rebellion and into idolatry, God doesn't squash them with the Leviticus 26 cycles of discipline the next day. There's time. He gives them time and we might say, good, good old Texas saying, enough rope to hang themselves or enough time to recover and turn back to him. So it's there, we can't be in a hurry. And I think sometimes, and that's not to justify being wrong or just taking your time. It is making sure that you are actually in the right spiritual frame of mind in terms of your orientation to the word to do the right thing and not uh, not easily succumb uh, succumb to sin in terms of mental attitude, sins of anger, resentment, bitterness, so that you can maintain a level of stability and objectivity. Now, in Matthew chapter five through Matthew chapter seven, we have the, the section of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a very uh, well-known passage or message that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his disciples on the um, <clears throat> on a small hill on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's repeated in uh, <clears throat> it's repeated in Luke uh, chapter six, and in Luke six, there's different words. It's a different context, and it says Jesus was on the plain. So it's a different location, even though he said a lot of the same thing. It's in a different location, different context, re- uh, responding to a different circumstance. That's always important. I mean, some of you have been listening to me for long enough to know that you've heard me teach the same doctrines several different times. And each time I'm coming out of a different context, a different framework, and I'm addressing maybe a different nuance. Sometimes I'm adding things. Sometimes I'm taking some points away. But just because you read something in Matthew 5 through 7, and it's almost identical in Luke 6, doesn't mean they're the same event. There's enough information there to make us understand that they're different events, similar message, but a different context. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is really addressing a a key issue uh, related to uh, related to uh, righteousness, and righteousness is a uh, foundational word all through this particular section. Now, I created a search file in uh, in the Logos software. Uh, to I was going to put this up on the screen so you could see it, but it, it does at this point the um, that window doesn't allow you to expand the text, so it's I can hardly see it. So I'm not going to put it up there on the board and make you think you're blind. Uh, but righteousness is used. The word just righteousness itself, not counting other forms of dikaios or dikaiosune, is used uh, 23 times in the book of Matthew. It's a major theme, especially in this section from Matthew 5 uh, through Matthew Matthew 6. Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, six times the word is used. And the key usage is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, which gives us an understanding of the context of... of um, the context of the verse. Let me go over here. Matthew. Switch Bibles. There we go. Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were a Jewish person living at that time, this would really get your attention because in terms of overt 
obedience, overt, ritual obedience according to the Mosaic law, nobody was better than the Pharisees. Now, Christians have a tendency to look at the Pharisees through the lens of Jesus' evaluation of the Pharisees and think these guys are really bad. But that wasn't true if you were living there. It's not that from a relative standpoint they were bad. They were excessively and obsessively religiously observant down to the details, the fine minutia of the law. The problem is that it was external, it wasn't internal, and they weren't dealing with the internal core problems. They were just following all of the external ritual. Now, externally, these look like the most moral, obedient, uh, God-fearing people that ever walked the planet. So when Jesus said, if your righteousness isn't better than their righteousness, you can't get into heaven, people are stunned. Why can't, why isn't their righteousness good enough? I mean, it's the best. And the point is that man's righteousness can't be as good as God requires. This is what the prophet Isaiah emphasized in Isaiah 60, uh, 65, 6, or 65, 6, that all our works of righteousness, not unrighteousness, but all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. In other words, the best that we do in God's sight is just filthy rags. It's unacceptable. We have to have perfect righteousness that's completely untainted. The only way you can have that is if it's given as a gift, which is the basis for, uh, which is the basis for grace. So Matthew uh, 5.20 gives us the key interpretation to unlock what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is contrasting the high standard of righteousness, which man just can't get to, that's in the Torah, that's in the Mosaic Law. But he's contrasting that with the, uh, the righteousness that the, that the Pharisees are promoting because it's, it's a, somehow it's a doable righteousness. They have, they have diluted the standard so that man can be good enough to meet this relative standard. It's a hard standard. Uh, you have uh, all of the uh, uh, legalistic ritual. Uh, that they were imposing upon everybody, which is why uh, Jesus referred to it as a form of slavery. But it, it, he's, his point is man just can't be uh, righteous enough to meet the standard of God. And so this whole idea of righteousness becomes the idea. And within, uh, within Pharisaism, there was this problem with being... Uh, arrogant and judgmental toward others so that if you weren't following their party line, then you were on the outs and they, uh, they rejected you and there were, they would be critically judging you. And so this is the background for understanding the passage I'm talking about. And so it must be understood in the context of the of the whole sermon, which is an exposition on the kind of righteousness that God expects and that God revealed in the Torah. Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not, that you be not judged. Now, if you look at the screen, I highlighted uh, two sets of words there. The first set of words are the words judged. These are all, uh, trans- the English word judge is a, a translation of a the Greek word krino, K-R-I-N-O is the, the root, the dictionary form of the word, and it shows up in various forms, either as the verb to judge or as the noun uh, kremati to, um, or, which is uh, translated judgment in verse 2. And then you have three uses of the root uh, metro there at the end of verse 2, that's translated uh, here at New King James uh, with the measure you use. Literally, you can see that the Greek word's the same. It should be translated with the measure you measure with. It will be measured. There's an emphasis there on measurement, and measurement has to do with evaluation and, and judgment from God's, uh, God's perspective. 
So the verse begins, judge not that you be not judged. And the idea here is not saying don't exercise critical discernment or evaluation towards people, events, and circumstances. That would be foolish. God doesn't say quit thinking about circumstances in life and the people you associate with and don't make any kinds of evaluations about them. And just look at passages like 1 Timothy 3 that list the qualifications for elders, for pastors, and for deacons. You have, In order to find a pastor that fits those qualifications, what do you have to do? You have to evaluate them. So the idea of judgment here isn't saying don't evaluate people. That that would be ridiculous. You're not going to just treat everybody the same. I know there are some Christians that do that. You get uh, Christians who produce these uh, Christian yellow pages. And uh, the idea basically is that anybody who's a Christian who's in those yellow pages, you can trust them. Well, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of Christians. I'm not going to trust them any further than I can see them. And you know the same kinds of people that I do. So it's, it's, we have to exercise evaluative judgment, but this is using the word in the sense of a, of an arrogant, destructive kind of judgment towards people being harshly critical of others in an arrogant manner. So Jesus says, judge not that ye be not judged. It's not our job to go around and make judgments about other people's spiritual condition and their uh, their righteousness, which is what the Pharisees were doing. And he says in verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, that is, if you go around doing that, this is uh, you in turn will be judged according to that same standard. And, of course, the one who is doing the judging uh, is God. He says, if this judgment you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he goes into a particular illustration that relates to conflict, uh, conflict resolution. And this we see in verse, verse 3. And he says, do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Now, the word for speck here in the Greek indicates just a minute piece of dust, and all of us have had one time or another where we just had a small uh, piece of dust or whatever get into our eye, and it's a little bit of an irritant, and we try to get it, get it out, and it just bothers us. But he's stating this with this uh, stark contrast between a tiny speck of dust versus a, a, a log, like... Um, He's talking about a, you know, a massive log or a massive beam that is used as a support. And he says, here you are, you're very concerned about this little bitty speck, this just little irritant thing in somebody else's eye, and all the while you're ignoring, because of self-deception and self-justification, you're ignoring the fact that that you've got a beam in your eye. The point is that he's saying you're all been out of shape because somebody else has some little peccadillo that uh, you think is so horrible, and in the and you're making an issue out of that in terms of your relationship. And the reality is you have even worse things going on in your own life that you're ignoring and acting as if they aren't there. The application in conflict resolution is if we're going to uh, try to resolve a conflict with somebody else, we have to start with self-evaluation and self-examination. Now that, we understand, begins first of all in terms of our relationship with God. We have to make sure that we are cleansed before God and we're forgiven by God in terms of whatever sin may be in our life. And so we start with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us uh, from all unrighteousness. So the starting point, first of all, is making sure that we're right with God. But it doesn't end there. Just because we're right with God doesn't mean that automatically we are right with other people whom we have uh, offended, whom we have 
uh, betrayed, whatever the circumstance may be, and now we have to go to that individual. This is what James is talking about in, in the fifth chapter of James, where he talks about confessing sins to one another. This isn't public confession of sins, which you see in some churches where They'll call people up and you have to tell everybody all the things that you've done. Some people like to go to churches like that. It's better than a soap opera. They get to hear what every, everybody else is doing, but they're not about to go get up in front of the church and confess to, to everybody. But that, that passage isn't talking about public confession of sin. It is talking about the fact that if you are a believer and you are in spiritual turmoil, and you are under uh, divine discipline because of this, then part of the process is you have to evaluate your life and see if there are these conflicts, and if so, you need to go to the other person and ask for their forgiveness. You need to go to the other person and apologize in some cases so that resolution can take place. You need to pursue peace with all people. And that means that there are times when you have to go to them in privacy between uh, you and the other person and get things right. So this is a starting point here that uh, where, we, uh, where we have to look and evaluate uh, our own life, our own position first. Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank or a beam is in your own eye. And what's the solution? He says, you're a hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your other's eye. Now, he's not saying it's you don't deal with the problem with the other person. That's the speck in his eye. But before you can deal with that, you have to make sure that you have dealt with whatever uh, sins or arrogance, problems, whatever it may be, that contributed to the problem in the first place. And you have to make things things right from your perspective in terms of whatever contribution uh, there has been uh, from your own side. Now, I have a little warning here, because I know that there are people who have extremely tender consciences and, in fact, they have been sort of programmed from birth that whenever somebody says, oh, look what somebody did here, whether they did it or not, they're the first persons to confess because they've just been programmed to respond in guilt to everything. And their first reaction is that they, to, you know, I did this, I horrible, whether they did it or not. And so they just are, are hypersensitive in that particular area. And that's just a much a form of arrogance as anything else. So we have to st- we have to avoid subjectivity and hyperventilating over our own sensitive conscience. We have to make sure that we don't respond to situations and this happens in a lot of family dynamics where you have uh one, two people who get at odds with each other. One of them has an extremely sensitive conscience, and in order to resolve the situation and have peace, they will become the sacrificial lamb and the martyr every single time and admit to it being all of their fault, no matter what, because they want to avoid the conflict, they want to achieve peace again, and basically they admit to a lie over and over again. And you, with, and you can't have real genuine uh, conflict resolution unless there's honesty and integrity at the foundation of the process. And so there has to be that. Without that, if you're just saying, okay, I'll admit to being at fault just so we can get past this and have resolution, then you're just keeping the problem going. You're contributing to the problem, and you're not resolving the problem, because if it is the other person's fault, 60%, 70%, 80%, they've got a major arrogance problem that needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, this pattern is just going to be repeated within the family dynamic again and again and again. And so when some people take on, uh, in an act of uh, pseudo-humility, uh, the guilt that they that isn't theirs and they play the martyr, it just continues to uh, contribute to the problem. Let me give you a couple of examples, uh, sort of case study types of things. I've watched some of these things happen. These are these are fictitious to a degree, but they're based on uh, experiences I've had in in dealing with people. First of all, 
you got two people who are in conflict. And you always have to remember that when you have two people in conflict, or just two people, you've got two people who are basically arrogant and self-absorbed to one degree or another. You're starting with two people who are sinners. And by definition, that means they are arrogant and self-absorbed. Now, the first person may have contributed to the situation, but only in some general sense. Now, I've seen this in a lot of marriage counseling scenarios and marriage breakdown scenarios. There's not a single perfect husband anywhere on the planet, and there hasn't been since Adam ate the fruit. It isn't going to happen. So every husband has done something that really screws up the marriage no matter what. But you have a lot of women who are humble and who are objective, and they realize that so they don't make an issue out out of this. And so it never blows up into a major uh, fracture within within the relationship. Same thing happens on the other side. There's no perfect wife anywhere. Every woman I've ever met is a sinner. I've never met one that wasn't a sinner. And they, just like we men, they make mistakes, they get in bad moods, they get irritable, grumpy, and all kinds of things that happen in life, and we're all familiar with that. And yet we have to uh, just overlook those things. When you love someone, a lot of times you just, you're going to step around things that uh, you know you should, and you just do that in, in humility. So you always have two people who are in conflict, and the other person, the person who is, let's just say, so-called in the right, is probably done a lot of things that they shouldn't have done. They've been, let's use a marriage example, they haven't been as neat as they should, they haven't been as punctual as they should, they haven't been as responsible in some areas of taking care of domestic responsibilities or financial responsibilities or whatever it may be as they should, but those are general faults. The other person, on the other hand, has done something that is truly a, 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 major, a major fault and a major problem that has contributed to a major breach within the relationship. So you have these two people. One of them has, in only a general sense, general sense uh, contributed to the breakdown, but the other one has, um, uh, has contributed in a, in a greater way. Now, the other person comes along, the one who's truly guilty, and they figure out a way to manufacture a rationale to make it look like the first person is the one who really generated all of the fault. Now, I know that wouldn't happen to anybody here, uh, but you know, Adam sort of mirrored that in the garden when, he, when God showed up and said, well, Adam... Uh, you, what, what happened? And Adam said, well, God, it's the woman you gave me. He's immediately passing the buck. We all do that. We're very good at it. So the person who's more guilty or who's really created the serious uh, breach manufactures a uh, rationale which flips the guilt back on the other person. Now, the other person, because of the nature that they're in, is a sensitive person. And so they say, well, you know, you're right. I really have failed in those areas. I'm so sorry. Let's go on. What's happened is that they've, they've apologized, but they're, they, they've convinced themselves they're the guilty party when they're not. And so you don't, by a lack of objectivity... And an emphasis on false humility, which is what that is, accepting the blame when that's not there, not accepting, you know, the proper level of blame for the right actions just contributes to a problem that will continue to grow and grow and grow and exacerbate until it really explodes uh, within the marriage. In another scenario, you have the same, same, you might have the same two people, but the second person then, um, uh, manufactures a, a rationale, uh, ma- manufactures another rationale, uh, does, and uh, doesn't accept any of the responsibility. Then um, the, the second person uh, deny, is in complete denial about what's going on and in self-justification, and they've generated uh, uh, some significant problems, let's say, 
And so now they, re- because they're in self-denial, they refuse to accept any responsibility for what's been going on. It's not their fault. It's the other person's fault. And they can list 25 things that the other person said just on drop of a dime. They can list 25 areas of fault with the other person, and they don't ever forget the, that list of 25. So uh, that, that person adopts a self-righteous strategy and only accepts part of the blame because, after all, you should. That's just going to make me look more generous and dumps it back on the, on the other person. And what you see in both of these eight types of examples and many others is we get into this gamesmanship where two people constantly try to avoid accepting honest, objective responsibility for their contribution to the problem, and they either manufacture uh, uh, self-justification for their behavior, they try to flip the blame back upon the other person, or they uh, make it look like uh, they're the ones who uh, are really not at fault. And, and all kinds of mixtures like that uh, play out in, um, in different relationships. You see it in breakdowns with families over many different issues. And I can think of about five or six examples of that right now from people that I, uh, that I know. And it, the problem is, at the root of it all, is just arrogance. And before you can get anywhere in resolving this kind of a situation, the person that wants to be, wants to pursue peace, the believer who wants to apply it, has to be truly and genuinely humble. That, that, uh, Removing the, the beam out of your own eye is the starting point. But that doesn't mean just because you are honest, and honest doesn't mean that you distort this. You have to have real objectivity. That's why I say sometimes this takes time because we're really good at, at deceiving ourselves in many different ways about our uh, about our involvement in different kinds of conflicts. I've known from situations I've seen in, in marriage counseling, and one reason I hate to do marriage counseling is because the people have prob- the two people in front of you, as a pastor, you look at these two people, and they've been engaged in certain kinds of behavioral patterns, probably, and sin patterns, arrogant patterns for most of their life, and they're so mired in self-deception that they can't, it'll be years before they can ever approach objectivity in describing what, what is actually going on in, in, the, in the relationship. And by the time they come and sit down in front of you, they've self-justified and self-justified so much that, that you've got 50 layers of self-justification rationales and self-deception on top of whatever the scenarios are. And the only person who can break through that is, of course, God, God the Holy Spirit, to give us the objectivity to be honest with ourselves before God to deal with the problems are. And once we do that, then we're in a position where we can address it with another person. But until you are honest with yourself and have that real humility to go to the other person, um, you, you can't get anywhere. It just then becomes another power struggle uh, gamesmanship between uh, between two people. Now, the next passage that I want to look at is, I've already set it up over here, is Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. And this is a, this is a passage where people often go for, for church discipline. I don't think this is, that Jesus is talking about a formal pattern that is to be followed uh, whenever anybody is sinning within a congregation. This is talking about a personal relationship breakdown and when two people need to work out the problem. So it begins with preserving privacy. You have a problem with somebody else uh, that sins against you, so you are to go and sit down with them and explain how they have offended you and where the problem is. Now, what do you have to do before you do that? You've got to do the Matthew 7, get the beam out of your eye. Until you do that, you can't go and talk to the other person. So then you go to talk to the other person, and you explain the fault, try to work it out, and if he hears you, you have gained a brother, the situation's resolved, you've made peace, you go forward. But if he doesn't hear you, Jesus then says, then take with you one or two more 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, see, that's going right back to the Mosaic Law, uh, which anything had to be confirmed with two or three witnesses, every word uh, might be established. So now it's a little more serious situation. You're going to talk to somebody, and if they're mired in self-deception, anger, resentment, you've got witnesses. You're trying to work this thing out. They are <coughs> there. The other person isn't listening. And then in the next verse, it's uh, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, this is one of the first uses of the word ecclesia in the New Testament. This is before, chronologically, before the founding of the church. Jesus isn't even talking about the church as the church yet. Ecclesia was also a word used for any, any kind of assembly. And so he's, he's talking about taking it before, and in this context, it was probably the synagogue, uh, and working out this, this conflict because by this point it would have reached a, uh, a, a major, uh, uh, major proportions and threatened the, probably the peace of the, uh, of the synagogue or the, uh, congregation. And so the point here is if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen, and a tax collector. Now, the realization here is that there are some people that you're going to deal with that you want to have conflict resolution with. They may be a son or daughter. They may be a parent. They may be a friend. They may be somebody you're in business with, you had a contract with. And at this point, you have to realize they don't want resolution, which is what you want. And you're just going to have to stop because no matter how much you want it, if they don't, uh, you can't have resolution. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, unless two people are agreed, how can they walk together? If there's not that agreement between two people that we're going to work through the circumstance and the situation to have resolution and to have peace, one person can't do it. It only, it, it, it takes two people to make any marriage work. It takes one person to make it not work. Anybody who's mired in arrogance is going to break down any relationship because there's no objectivity and there's no humility and there's no grace. And so it only takes one person to destroy uh, that relationship, but it takes both of them working together to bring about uh, that sort of resolution. Also, just another interesting uh, comment here in terms of this, this passage is verse 18. Jesus then says, addressing his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What he says, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this terminology of binding and loosing comes out of uh, rabbinic uh, verbiage, and basically it means that when, whatever, however you decide to resolve an issue, uh, you have the authority to resolve it. Whatever you uh, bind has uh, already been bound in heaven. You are, in effect, as the uh, as the as the disciples, you have the authority to to uh, pronounce judgments in these kind of situations. So, what happened in verse uh, 17? Jesus said, "If you're going to go to this person, take two or three witnesses with you." And it's very important to understand this context. Because the next verse is one of those prayer promises you often hear quoted by people that's just ripped out of context. Verse 19, Jesus said, uh, again, I say to you, same group of verse 18, that if two of you agree, he's contextually he's talking to the disciples, if two of you agree on, on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Contextually, what are they asking for? Binding and loosing, judgment. This isn't a prayer promise. This is a promise related to the authority that the disciples would have in the early church in conflict resolution. It's not a prayer promise. God isn't saying you're going to have more effective prayers if you can get two or three Christians together and they can agree on something. This is not talking about prayer. This is talking about the uh, bringing two or three witnesses together in the second stage of this conflict resolution, and they're the ones who are in authority to bring about that, that resolution and agreement and to enforce authority if necessary in terms of those relationships. So don't be quoting Matthew 
1819 as a prayer promise that if we can just have two or three together uh, and pray, God's going to hear us because we've hit the magic, uh, we've hit the magic number, and uh, and now God's going to listen to us. Doesn't work that way. So tonight, what what we emphasize is that conflict resolution starts by looking at us. There has to be humility. There has to be objectivity. There, it starts with self-examination in terms of confession, our relationship with God, number one, and then in terms of resolving the conflict with the other person. Without humility, it's all a fraud. And you only get that humility if you are, in fact, willing to deal with honestly with your fault, not accepting blame that's not yours and not trying to rationalize away blame that is yours. It has to be honest and objective. We'll come back next time. I want to look at two or three other passages that we have in the scriptures, getting into uh, passages such as uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So we'll start dealing, linking this with forgiveness and uh, the love of God. And then we can see how all of this works out as a priority in the believer's life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. Uh, it's never easy in terms of conflict resolution, but it is important for us to be honest, to be objective, and to bring this before you as a proper goal and objective in our spiritual life and the relationships in which we find ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.